Everyone, this is John. This is Wes. And this is Ryan. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best damn Nintendo podcast on the internet. This is going to be the retro show for the month of September 2023. What we do on the retro show is we peek back in time. We time travel 21 years ago and talk about all the things that were happening back then. And you guys, what a time to be alive. Yeah, yeah, was. We, the sun was shining. We were living in the millennium. And there are 10 Nintendo games to talk about here. Holy shit. But before we get into all of those, Ryan, what was happening in the world okay. in September of 2002? Yeah, a day in the life of September 2002. Well, we're probably mourning the one-year anniversary of the September 11th, the sure. which happened the year prior. Mm-hmm. That's a thing I imagine most people are doing. But contemporarily, like, what happened that month, Not aside from that? Uh, Kelly Clarkson wins the first season of American Idol. Oh, wow. That was, that was a big deal. American Idol was wow. the thing, and she won it. Um, a TV show called Dr. Phil premieres, Ooh, yep. uh, yeah, namely with a uh, huckster who does not actually have a medical degree. One of the many cretins that Oprah has unleashed onto the world. Do you know how she met him? No. This Craigslist. Uh, no. <laughs> he was an attorney that was representing her in a court case where the Cattle Association of Texas was suing her for defamation. Hmm. Very right. So here, here's the quick, real quick backstory. I know we have a lot to get through, but the real quick backstory behind how the two of them actually met um, is that she had said some things about the beef industry on her TV show. She's actually she films in Texas. Her show filmed in Texas, and she's I don't know if she's from Texas, but um, of course cattle is huge there. They took it as a, this was during the height of the mad cow disease. Hmm. So she basically was sort of like telling everyone beef was unsafe. Um, and they're like, you can't do that. You're destroying our industry. And they sue her for that. And apparently, she's not taking it very seriously. And then this guy, Dr. Phil, who was one of the groups and the attorney representing her, basically said, you need to shut the fuck up and take this seriously. The jury sees you behaving like this. They will go against you. So be, be serious about this. Um, so, yeah, he's not a doctor in any way. But then he gives all of this bullshit, quack medical advice. Um, you know, he's very much, he's sort of like Jerry Springer with a veneer of, I don't know, like Southern charm and toughness. Yeah, yeah. Even charm, it's like oatmeal. Like, it's just bland. There's just, ugh. And, and there are some good things he's done, I'm sure, but for, uh, on, the, on the whole, he is a shill and a distributor of lies, falsehoods, just a terrible person. Tell us how you really feel about the guy. Oh, the TV show yeah. Everwood premiered. Okay. Guys, did you ever watch Everwood? I might have caught two or three episodes of the kid who played piano and they moved to a mountain town. You got it right, man. That's that's exactly oh. the same one with Treat Williams, who was the, the villain in The Phantom, and it also has um, the, sis- the, the sister in it. Uh, she's in the Captain America series. Oh, and, and Chris Pratt. And Chris, Chris Pratt, Pratt is in it. Is in it. <laughs> oh. So... Uh, was it Star-Lord or Star-Man? Whatever the fuck his name Peter is. Peter Quill, yeah. Peter? I did finally watch that third movie. Oh, you did? Yeah. I, I liked it. I think it made I liked it. Maybe it was the best of the three. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. Um, yeah, also apparently a science fiction series called Firefly premieres. Oh, little you guys, little know. you guys heard of this one? You guys heard of the Firefly? I don't think we ever finished our episode by episode breakdown. Were we doing that? Oh yeah, well, like years ago, we would like oh, do we bring that back. side episode. Scott we just watched an episode of Space World. Oh. Yeah, we we need we need to get back to that. Yeah, yeah. That if you guys if you guys want to 
catch up on it, and then when the time comes, I think there's only, what, 12 episodes, right? 13 episodes? Yep, may it rest in peace. If you want the retro show in six months or, or three months even, or whatever, when the series ends, want to do a recap, feel free. I'm in. Just go. I mean, I'll, I'll knock it out on a weekend. I mean, it's so fucking good. Yeah. It's highly rewatchable. It's like an easy watching, fun show. Yeah. And then, because I brought it up like every fucking month, I will bring it up. The DC Sniper, what happens in September... Um, there is, in fact, four different, well, five total shootings occur, and this is what is termed the Beltway Sniper incident. So this is before what goes down in, in the D.C. area. Um, and Paula Rufa, he's a 55-year-old pizzeria owner, um, is shot six times but survives. Oh, Actually yeah. lives. It's insane. Wow. Um, and this is also with a handgun. This is not with the rifle that they'll be known for using. Um, Benny O'Berry, um, he is an employee of a Springfield, Maryland liquor store, shot in the back and survived. Um, Muhammad Rashid, shot and killed at a liquor store. Um, who is it? Million A. Waldemarian, it's a hell of a name, was fatally shot outside a convenience store in Atlanta, so now they're in Atlanta. Um, and then Claudine Parker, 19 hours later on the same day, September 21st, she was caught and sh- uh, shot and killed outside of a um, convenience store. What was the last one? Did she die? Yes, fatally shot. So, and at this point, do they they don't know that it's the same like? So the, it, there's perpetrators. A, yeah, and that's what's kind of confusing about this is that there's. Uh, by the way, those dates are September fifth, fourteenth, fifteenth, and twenty first. So it's over the course of two weeks. It's also spread out over like eight hundred geographic miles, like Atlanta to, you know, what, what's the furthest north here? Probably Clinton, Maryland, right? And they're all liquor, basically liquor and convenience store shootings. These look like they're basically robberies. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see that. And your first instinct would be, these are copycat killings, serial murders, whatever you want to call them. So I mean, they're just doing it just to do it, right? There's no rhyme or reason. Some of them, yeah, they're doing it literally to pickpocket. They're doing it literally to just steal wallets out of other people's pockets and things like that. It, uh, it's what spawns from this. Literally, I think the the first event will be October second is when the DC sniper hysteria really boils over and it becomes this thing and everyone starts freaking out. And like, why do I keep, I I wanted to preface this too by like saying, why do I keep bringing this up? And it's like, we look back at 2001 and the September 11th attacks were the biggest event of the year and generationally one of the biggest events. Like this is this is one of those moments that will be remembered for generations to come. The September 11th the text. It's this huge turning point in American history. I mean, sick of the jokes that people are making nowadays, especially with like Instagram stuff like that. They're like, yeah, I got my keys, I got my wallet. They're like, what did I forget? And it's like, oh, you forgot. Never forget. Oh, I forgot. And then just it's yeah, like, I was like, right. it's not funny yet. This isn't. This is. It's not cool. Like, yeah. If we've learned anything from South Park season six, <laughs> is that we need to wait another like. 1.1 years before it becomes funny. Yeah. And I, I always say that because the DC sniper attacks probably were the single biggest event of 2002. But it's an order of magnitude less meaningful than that event, right? So I, I do want to bring it up as many times as I can because this was um, a moment of nationwide hysteria. Hmm. Um, and it was so, so big at the moment, and now it's just sort of a forgotten thing. So that's it. That, that's that's the current events. Sorry to end on that, but yeah, I'll get Dr. It. Phil Everwood. 
Firefly, Kelly Clarkson, and the DC Sniper. <laughs> so, quite the month. Let's let's jump right in. There are a ton of game topics to get through here. First, I want to start with the Nintendo e-reader, fellas. If you are not familiar with this, this was a peripheral, an add-on device yeah. for the GBA to have expandable content into specific games through the use of physical playing card accessories. Oh, God. You would buy these playing cards. I like the... The e-reader will plug into one of the the ports of the Game Boy Advance system itself. Oh, I remember this. You thing. swipe the card, and the data was actually stored on this playing card thing, rather than like unlocking something within the game. So then these cards will have data for things like NES games. You could just like swipe the card and play an NES game on your GBA, and a lot of these games will later be released as separate standalone cartridges on the GBA, but games like uh, Ice Climber and Garkid Icarus or Super Mario Brothers, those sort of NES games, um, it would unlock new levels and power-ups in the Game Boy Advance version of Mario 3, not quite out yet, that one's still pending. It would unlock new trainers to battle in Ruby and Sapphire, also not out yet. Uh, items in Animal Crossing, mini, mini games in, in different games such as Mario Party. Uh, game and watch games, but only one of those was ever officially released. And this is kind of like a precursor to what they do with Amiibo. Amiibo never. I was waiting for you to stop talking so I could get a jab in. <laughs> Please. Like, it can, oh, no, no. Like, Just want to bring up the fact that this sounds like useful Amiibos. Right, so, uh, uh, Amiibo, every once in a while, they would. They don't really do it anymore, but they would have a functionality within a game, like, oh, what, to give you this extra content. And at a certain point, they reverted to more like, okay, it unlocks a costume themed around this thing. And in Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom, you can drop those amiibo in, it just kind of spawns a bunch of, you know, meat or fruit, and you just go and pick up for fish. So it doesn't really unlock significant content, as significant content as like a full NES game like it does with these things. But yeah, what a, a weird little accessory. Wouldn't you love it if you tapped your Yoshi emoji on uh, um, amiibo on, the, on your like controller and it's just like, do you want to play Yoshi's World? Uh, yeah, I do kind of. So uh, did you look how much this is going for? I did not, please. So uh, take a guess. How much do you think you can find a Nintendo e-reader for nowadays? You know, I don't know how much it retailed for even. I'm gonna, I'll say eighty dollars. I'll say a little more. I'm gonna go one seventy. I saw it on eBay for fifteen ninety nine. Okay. Oh, <laughs> never mind. That's cheap. Way over. How much do the individual cards go for? It's like the e-reader. Oh, card collection. Let's, let's Google this. Oh. All right, you do some fact checking. I'm gonna move over to a game. So I'm gonna start with the. We'll G- go to Christie's and look up the most expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with yeah. the GBA games this time, because we should start with the game key, but we're going to start with GBA. So the first one is Mega Man Zero. We've got a proper Mega Man game here. We talked about the Battle Network game on a previous show. Um, this one was developed by Inti Creates. This might be the first time we're mentioning this developer on a retro show. We talk about them every once in a while on the, the more like, uh, contemporary shows. Uh, published by Capcom, of course. So, Integrates was a developer formed in 1998 by some Capcom expats, and they worked very closely with Capcom for a long time. They did a handful of PS1 games, but they first worked with Capcom on this uh, Mega Man Zero sort of, not, not really a reboot of the series, but a different like tributary that the series goes down. Um, Integrate is probably most well-known for now for the Azure Striker games, and they also did the remakes or the, the new entries in those Blaster Master series that all released for the Switch, or all three of them were very good. 
the Mega Man Zero game produced by Keiji Inafune. He was the character designer for the original Mega Man games, and he was at the helm of the Mega Man series from 1996 until about 2010 when he left Capcom, and Capcom decided to stop making Mega Man games. But Mega Man Zero itself is a side-scrolling action game, much like you'd expect from the successor series to Mega Man and Mega Man X. The twist is that you, in addition to your buster gun, you get a saber, because Zero is super cool and uses a sword. It does more damage, it strikes quicker than the buster gun pellets, and when you're on a GBA screen, you're of course on a screen of very small real estate, so it's just kind of a, a quicker weapon to, uh, for free like your Twitch gaming, for, for more reflexive gaming, to do a lot of damage in a quick amount of time when you're in close quarters. So, like I said, not only some smaller screen, but you get a smaller scope of the game. There's only four of the robot masters, uh, as opposed to other Mega Man, Mega Man X games, you're typically getting eight. It's mission-based rather than sort of like level select base, because in a lot of Mega Man games, you select the boss you want to go against, you play through their stage, and you fight them at the end. Whereas in this one, there's a, uh, missions that you can select, and then you find the direction you need to go to accomplish that mission in this more of like an open world type of area. So it doesn't like transport where you need to go. You start from your hub and then have to pick your cardinal direction that you're going in. So you, you might fight a um, one of the four robot masters. There's also like some some mini bosses or side bosses that are not associated with those robot masters, where you like you, you gain their powers when you beat them to fight uh, like a, more of like a large mechanical type of boss, kind of a faceless goon. Um, when you when you defeat a robot masters, you do get a power from them as you would in a normal Mega Man or Mega Man X game. Typically in those games though, you're getting a new type of gun, a new type of melee weapon, something that's going to expand your arsenal. Whereas in Mega Man Zero, um, it's going to add elemental affinities to your default weaponry. So your, your sword or your buster gun. And like, hey, now it's got like a, a fire elemental affinity and that's going to be uh, Super effective on grass types, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, you do get other weapons throughout the game that can be obtained, uh, but not from your robot masters, and you can switch them out onto your like primary or secondary weapon slot. So, again, you're working with very few buttons on a Game Boy Advance. So, you know, you, you of course have your jump and your primary weapon on the face buttons, and then on the shoulder buttons, you're getting like a dash and your secondary weapon, and you can swap out those. Uh, primary and secondary weapons with the other things you can get, like uh, like a staff sort of weapon or a shield sort of weapon. So you got some options to go through there. These weapons can be upgraded uh, or powered up as you use them, um, and that will like upgrade like the, the amount of damage that they're doing. Also, like maybe their strike range for certain weapons, like your your staff can get longer. So on your your sword, your Buster sword, you'll have a, a, a wider arc of its swing. A lot of the mainstay mechanics from Mega Man series games return, such things like wall jumps, dashes, charge shots, it all seems very familiar. And they all work really well together to create this fast-paced action platforming game. And it's a really challenging game. Lives are very limited. By default in any particular mission, you are working with three lives. The amount of lives that you have in the previous mission will carry over. So you can find extra lives, you get extra ones, you'll carry them over to the next mission. However, if you died two times on a previous mission and only had one life left and you die, that's it, that's the end of it. And then you have to start the entire stage over and like re-accept the mission. So uh, it, it is um, 
there, there are ways to help you out with that, such as getting the live drops randomly, or, or if you find one that's tucked away kind of in a default position in any particular mission stage. You can also get health or stamina upgrades, those are few and far between, so them have to be purchased with this in-game currency that enemies will drop. And you could spend a ton of time grinding out these crystals to buy more of your overall HP, but the game is tuned with this expectation that you're going to be playing it over and over again. It takes a lot of this currency to actually get all of these upgrades. So it's always trying to keep on pushing you forward. You have to find really specific spots where, hey, I'm going to fight this group of enemies, hopefully gain 20 of the thousand that I need, do a screen pull, go back and hopefully get a few more. So what ends up happening is when you're playing through the main story, it'll take about three hours to work through. It's a pretty short game. But all of your upgrades and progress of all of your like your collectibles and your weapon upgrades will carry over into a new game plus. And the game is kind of built with the the mentality that you're going to do multiple runs. So as your skill with the game increases, you learn what the bosses are going to do and how they're going to approach you. You're also just getting more physically capable in the game. You're able to take more hits and you're doing more damage. So you're becoming just a more effective player overall. Um, and I think that's probably like one of the the strong points about the game. It's if you're into replaying these sorts of games over and over again, it's a very good one because you do notice the difference between how much easier it gets every time you play through it. If you're playing and just playing through it once, it it's kind of a, kind of a grind, kind of a hassle just to go through it one time. So it's one if you're looking to go through it again, set some significant amount of time to really get a feel for the game. It's a nice looking game. In the Japanese version, when you take out certain humanoid enemies, they bleed. That got taken out of the versions for North America and Europe. They didn't want uh, blood coming out of the... Those are robots. Yeah, because you're beating up robots. It's a robot world. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good, got a good soundtrack uh, composed by Ippo Yamada. So what, what, do, you, what do you guys think? Uh, over under this game retailed twenty nine ninety nine at release. Mm -hmm. What do you think it uh, goes for now? Oh gosh, I have no idea. Uh, I was really over last time, and I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna fucking double down on it, man. Seventy bucks. Oof. I guess you can get it for like twenty bucks. Forty goes for oh. forty. Okay. So over the retail. Everything between both of us. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, you can get a Mega Man Zero collection. For the original DS, well, that one used to be really expensive, but it's dropped. You can get a car for that for about 20 bucks. There's also a Legacy Collection you get on Switch that includes all four of the Zero games plus the two ZX games for DS. You can get that one brand new for about 30 bucks. I had one of those Zero Collection games for the DS. Yeah. And then I lent it to Carlos. And you'll never see it again. I'll never see it again. <laughs> but yeah, cool game. Let's move over to Castlevania Harmony of Dissonance for the GBA. Uh, going from Capcom to Konami here. This one was developed by the Konami Tokyo in-house development studio and, of course, published by Konami. It was produced... Harmony, by the way, being the opposite, the antonym. Yes. Dissonance. That's how you know the game is edgy. So what does it mean? What does it even fucking mean? It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, right? Come on. So... Uh, produced by Koji Igarashi. This guy is the first time he's 
produced a wholly original Castlevania game. I think there's like a, a, a remake, some sort of compilation that he produced previous to this on the PS1, I think it was. But he was the assistant director of Castlevania Symphony of the Night, probably the most famous of the Castlevania games. They put the Vania into Metroidvania, which to me kind of, it, it still rubs me the wrong way, just a little bit, it goes against the grain a little bit because Castlevania started mimicking Metroid and then the genre kind of becomes Metroidvania. Like, no, the, the genre is a Metroid-like. And Castlevania's aping its style. Anyway, neither here nor there. Also, hadn't they just released Circle of the Moon? Circle of the Moon came out that the was year pre- before. Like, yeah, 2001. On the GBA. Um, Mr. Igarashi was not involved in that game as the producer. Mm-hmm. But like th- this guy, Igarashi, he'll become synonymous with Castlevania, much in the way that uh, the guy I mentioned before, Inafune, became sort of the, the guy at the helm of the Mega Man series from about 2002 to about 2010 when Konami decided to stop making video games. Um, and he, he went on after working with Castlevania, he made that Bloodstained game. My God, that much, I think that game came out in 2017 and it was broken at launch on Switch. They fixed it now. Yeah. I may mean to try it because now that it goes on sale, I'm like, should I grab this thing? I mean, if you like Metroid-style games, yeah. yeah. Definitely worth a shot. Uh, this is a quick aside for this game that's coming out in the future for all our listeners in 2002 there was uh, a boss that I was fighting when I was playing that game new and they've since fixed it but it, the boss got stuck in a wall so I just like used my melee weapon just to chip away at it and I must have like been like just hitting it for 45 seconds so it would have been a tough fight if the game hadn't just handed me a victory uh, but Castlevania, Harmony of Dissonance, it takes place in the, the setting of the game in 1748, which is sort of mid to late uh, Castlevania in um, the, the video game timeline. You play as Just Belmont. He is the grandson of Simon Belmont, and he wields the vampire killer whip. Wait, his name is Just? Uh, J-U-S-T-E. I think it's pronounced Just. Just. Yeah. Juiced? Juiced Juiced This is is one juiced Belmont. (laughs) They couldn't just call him Justin. No, they had to pick something weird. Well, just like the baseball player for the Atlanta Braves, David (laughs) Justus. Yes, perfect. (laughs) So the the first thing that is... Did you guys have any questions about the Castlevania timeline? Because we can get into it if you feel like it. Or we can just put it right here. Oh, my God. Which one are we talking about? The Harmony of Dissonance or whatever? Yeah, so... So basically, there is a Castlevania canon, and it doesn't even include it doesn't include the Lords of Shadow game. First of all, that's like an, its own reboot. Those I think it's three or four games that are in the Lords of Shadow branch. Um, but not all of the other Castlevania games are within the canonical Castlevania uh, timeline, as set down by Mr. Koji Igarashi, we mentioned before. Um, the games like Circle of the Moon that came out last year are technically not within Castlevania canon timeline. It's just a weird spin-off, other world type thing. But just like the high level stuff, in Castlevania, the sort of story kicks off in the 11th century um, when a guy became a vampire and took on the name Dracula, a very powerful vampire, and the Belmont family uh, lineage has to continuously go after him, take him down, because they have the one weapon that can like, wield him ineffective, the, the vampire killer whip. Um, and he, he's killed over and over again, but the sort of, of curse that they're dealing with with Dracula is that he'll just reincarnate himself every hundred years, like, like Clockwork. And there are some like uh, interstitial games like 
uh, Castlevania Harmony of Dissonance, which it takes place on like a 50-year interstitial. Like Dracula is not trying to resurrect himself; someone's trying to resurrect him early. So you know, uh, one of the Belmonts or a different faction will have to try to stop the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not part of the normal hundred years, but basically, you get this uh, this span of games that takes place from like the 11th century into the 21st century, where Dracula is trying to reincarnate over and over again until you get to 1999, when uh, Julius Belmont kills off Dracula for good, destroys his body. He can't reincarnate his body, but uh, and then there's like this this big war, and that's actually not in a game. That's just something where Igarashi said, like this, this is the thing that happened, and yeah, then he made about it. yeah, and he made a follow up game to this thing happening where the soul of Dracula is reincarnated, but not his body. So he doesn't have the powers of Dracula. And then there's a a group that's trying to make this guy Soma Cruz into Dracula. It's wild. Yeah. This is, this is a wild time. Anyway. So in the game that we're talking about here, who we who are we trying to kill right now? Uh, death. Death is a minion of Dracula. So so that's the big boss of this one is death. Yes. Okay. Yes. And the harmony so, of dissonance. Yeah. But the, the first thing that's noticeable about this game, we'll get into the specifics, is that it has a much more bombastic color palette. And this is a, a response to some of the criticisms of Circle of the Moon. It's a very dark game. And especially on a handheld system with no backlight, you couldn't really see what was going on that well. Agreed. <laughs> so what I, got, I, got, I got the cartridge last mm-hmm. year to play that game, and I was just like so befuddled by how tiny the screen was. Sitting under a lamp. And I'm, like looking, up, hey, I'm looking up on my laptop, you know, these incredible pixel art images, and I'm like, this is going to be so great to play. And it's this dinky, like, <laughs> two and a half inch square. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you can get um, all these GBA games if you're interested in playing through those three. You can get them on uh, Switch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a Castlevania collection. I will also point out, the artwork is amazing. I don't want to make it discount the artwork that it's not amazing, but, like, the one screen grab that, the, that they have on the Wikipedia page for it is this background where they have four identical grandfather clocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, you can tell they just cut the same image over and over again in the background. It's like, that's like, who, who sets those clocks? Sure. That's somebody's job to go in and daily and wind those things. And, and by, the, by the time he gets to the last one, you got to start all back over the first one. And that's when the candelabra falls on him. <laughs> <laughs> and he welcomes a sweet embrace of death. <laughs> So it's funny that you mentioned like the repeating pixel. Like Castlevania is a pretty notorious series for reusing the sort of assets. You have like long hallways of the same things mm-hmm. over and over again. And in um, certain uh, Symphony of the Night, that's the one I'm looking for. In Symphony of the Night, the one that uh, sort of modernized the Castlevania formula by making it more like Metroid. There was this thing like at the end, you get through Dracula's castle, and then you're you're expecting it to be over, but then the game like doubles in size because the castle gets inverted, and you have to work your way through the same area again, but everything's been flipped upside down. There's a really cool example of like this really uh, clever level design by like you're retraversing through the same areas, but everything is different now because it's inverted. Harmony of Dissonance tries to do a different thing where there's like an A side and B side of the castle, and there are points in the game where you're going back and forth, like, okay, let's do the A side up to here, then let's go to the B side. Similar to Metroid Prime 2 Echoes, where there's a light and a dark world. Um, but in Harmony of Dissonance, the A and the B are the same things, except the color palette is switched around a bit. Mm. So one of the criticisms about the game is that it can be a little bit uh, convoluted, a little disorienting, because sometimes you'll think 
you, you, if you forget what side that you're on, you can kind of forget what it is that you're supposed to be doing and where you're supposed to be going next. Like, okay, I've been moving around on this side. I got to find a point to go to the B side, but the B side looks exactly the same, except just a different color. So it, it, it's easy to lose track of where you are and where you need to go. Uh, you do have a map, which is great. Maps make everything better. Um, but the, the game structure is based on Symphony of the Night, like we've been talking about. There are the A side and B side of these castles, and uh, as opposed to being like a, a level-based progression, like early Castlevania, so you're done with one level, you move on to level two, and like more like a Mario game kind of thing. Um, the you, you do get uh, new abilities to open up new parts of the castle, as you would in a, a Symphony of the Night or a Metroid game. Uh, there's a lot of locomotive skills that make retraversing the interior of the castle a lot friendlier. A backstab, double jump, high jump, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, and you also uh, level up. There's a level up base system um, that will get you things like more HP, mana, stamina. You can also find items scattered around the castle to increase those stats without getting level up. There's a pretty heavy emphasis on sub-weapons, which are kind of a forgotten... A feature of Castlevania games um, as Symphony of the Night format took over and a lot of these these sub-weapons are things like a book, an axe, some holy water, a cross that acts like a boomerang. If this sounds familiar, it's because <laughs> vampires and virus ripped them off. Yeah. Um, but what, what you do is these sub-weapons will have an economy to them. You can use them X amount of times and you have to find like more like destructible candle operas to uh, find your, your ammo reloads for these things. And there's also spell books that will alter the way these sub-weapons work. So you'll find like a fire spell book and it won't just like, okay, well now your, your holy water is on fire, but it'll also alter the way that they, they work. So instead of like, oh, I have an axe, now the axe is on fire. If you like, just for example, put like lightning on it, now like maybe it calls down lightning as opposed to throwing an axe. So there's a lot of things that you can do to mix and match your sub weapons to match your play style. Mm, okay. But reviewed really well. Overall 87 Metacritic score. So really, really good despite some of the complaints about the um, A side and B side of the castle. Also there's some criticisms of the soundtrack. Uh, because it was a bit simplistic, not quite as uh, ornate as people were used to from Castlevania. Oh, that's a shame. But yeah, very very cool game. Yep. Very good. There was a time where we would get like new Mega Man games and new Castlevania games on the regular. Mm-hmm. What a time to be alive! It really was. Moving over to Super Girls and Ghosts from the GBA. This is a part of the uh, Super Nintendo game. We won't spend a whole lot of time on it. Super Nintendo game, the same name, developed and published by Capcom, of course. That is their series. The original game was produced by Tokuru Fujiwara. He is a Capcom legend. He produced and directed almost every significant Capcom game from 1985 to 1995. His last major credit on a video game was Mad World for the Wii in 2009. Oh, wow. How about that? How about that? Uh, It's a side-scrolling action game, pretty much a known quantity, Supergirls and Ghosts. Uh, You can't take much damage. You lose your armor after first hit. Um, from randomly spawning enemies. There are fixed arc jumps. You don't control your momentum. There is a double jump. But when you jump, you are committed to that direction and to that complete arc, and sometimes enemies will just spawn right underneath you. 
The so it kills you, but it kills you so much higher. It does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the GBA port has an arrange mode. You can choose levels or bosses based on remixes of other games. Uh, and it might be a good game for like a car trip because it does take a long time to get good at if you can get good at it. Uh, you can finish it pretty quickly if you are lucky. Um, and you, you can get a used cart if you want for like 25 or 30 bucks, or you can just get it on the Super Nintendo, Nintendo Switch Online app and play it if you have that subscription. Your main character moves so slowly, too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that just looks annoying. Yeah, I never really appreciated the Ghouls and Ghosts or Ghosts and Goblins series. I just think they're a little too unfriendly for their own good. And they're, they're unfriendly not in the way that, like, if you are able to uh, develop this exceptional skill at these games. It's, it's too random for them to uh, for it to be like, okay, I'm having a really good run. I'm definitely going to be able to make it really far this time. You can have a really good run and three enemies spawn. There's no way to get out, out of the situation. Fire Pro Wrestling 2 came out on the GBA in September. We talked about this one a little bit over a year ago. The first one for GBA came out in June of 2001. If you want a little bit more in-depth about that series, you can go find that episode. This is a series of wrestling games that use the likeness of professional wrestling performers, but not the names. Okay. It's been around a long time, since so 1989. It's only come out in North America four times. The first time it came out in North America was the first one in 2001 on GBA. Maybe to avoid legal action? I don't know. Who knows? But it probably goes without saying that this one doesn't sell particularly well, doesn't really review particularly well, all that either. It does okay. Like, high sevens, low eights. I think of the Fire Pro Wrestling games that release in North America, this one has the lowest aggregate Metacritic score at 72. It's a seven. It's the kiss of death on a video game. Mm -hmm. If you have some sort of odd curiosity about head grapple heavy wrestling games and you got 50 bucks to burn, go get a cart. <laughs> and to wrap up the Game Boy Advance games here, we have a port of Yoshi's Island Super Mario Advance 2. Sorry, Super Mario Advance 3. This one has an amazing name. So the official name for this game is Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island Super Mario Advance 3. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> <It's> wild. <laughs> Uh, ported to the GBA by Nintendo R&D 2. The original was made by Nintendo EAD and, of course, published by Nintendo. Um, we, we know what this game is. We're aware of Yoshi's Island. It's uh, the platforming follow-up to both Super Mario World and Donkey Kong Country. More mechanically complex than either of those two. You're eating enemies, turning them into eggs, throwing the eggs. Uh, you got your flutter jump, you got all your collectibles, your flowers, you got the babies that ride around your back. Yoshi doesn't ever really die unless he falls on a pit. All you really got to do is make sure the baby makes it to the end. Uh, and there's that annoying screaming that happens when uh, when you get hit and it starts floating away in a bubble. It's got fun music. It does have really great music. It's great music. The soundtrack is tremendous. It does have a smaller, the GBA screen has a smaller resolution than what you would get out of like a, a TV in your Super Nintendo. So the screen real estate is smaller, you're seeing less of it. Uh, but it does add six extra stages, which is pretty fun. You get some additional content. Um, you can get a used copy of this one for about 30 bucks, which is what it retailed for at the time, uh, for this somewhat inferior version of the game. Or you can play it on NSO, the Super Nintendo version. So this game is widely available to play if you got a Switch. Really good game. I think we probably talked about this on the Super Nintendo show way back when. Mm -hmm. Ryan, you got anything before we move over to GBA or move over to GameCube? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, two of them are 
cross platform. Take the baton for a minute. Um, if you want to talk about the exclusives, we can talk about the exclusives. But I, I, I'll just do the cross platforms one first. Yeah. Um, a game called Mystic Heroes came out on uh, GameCube and TS. Uh, I remember this one. This is a Dynasty Warrior style game. I didn't get great reviews. Mm. It's also weird because this actually got released two months before the PlayStation 2 version. Oh, weird. Here's the thing, though. It has half the number of characters to PlayStation 2 and is missing certain gameplay modes. Mm. Um, you know, they probably didn't want to press two discs. That's my conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it was seems like it was a pretty big game. And when it came out, I just didn't review particularly well. It was big on both consoles. Or not big, but, you know. Significant? All relative. I'm also combining two games because they seem like they were kindred spirits. I don't know if you intended to talk about either of these, but um, two very poorly received platformers came out called Tide, Tasmanian Tiger and Crash Bandicoot, Wrath of Cortex. I do have some notes about Crash Bandicoot, but not about Tide. I didn't know that Tide came out. That's a game that they keep on porting. That game won't die. <laughs> Yeah, they, I mentioned them together because they look like they're very similar um, in concept. It looks like they're plat action 3D platformers, um, kind of like what we've already seen from... Wait, didn't Sunshine literally just come out? Yeah, the month before. The last yeah, yeah. yeah, so this is like a known quantity um, for the the console. Um, I, I, that's it for me, though. Like, what, what, do you, what do you have about I do have, I do have some things that got crashed. So... Um, no, for Rather Cortex. It was developed by Traveler's Tales and published by Universal Interactive. Traveler's Tales, you might be aware of them, maybe not by that name. They're a British development company. They changed their name to TT Games in 2004 when it bought Giant Interactive Entertainment. That company, that developer, Giant Interactive, was making the original Lego Star Wars game at the time that they got hmm. bought out. Oh, wow. Um, Traveler's Tales themselves, they much have made a bunch of Disney licensed games in the 90s, but they have made exclusively Lego games since about 2009. That's all they do. And they're now a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Interactive. Um, every single Lego game is made by them. But this, uh, this was the only Crash Bandicoot game that they made. I forget who made Crash Bandicoot before they did this one. Um, and it's also the worst reviewed Crash Bandicoot game. Uh, it, they did have the original designer of the Crash Bandicoot games uh, on board. Um, so maybe Crash Bandicoot was never good. That's my theory. And it seems like reviews were particularly worse on the GameCube, but it's also like, again, this, the release dates were staggered weirdly. This apparently came out PlayStation 2 late 2001, mm -hmm. Xbox early 2002, and now on the GameCube. And you're right, like, not significantly worse. It's like one's got a 6 out of 10 and one's got a 5 out of 10. Yeah, that, that might be like you know. just the product of the environment that it's on. Mm -hmm. um, it comes out a month after Super Mario Sunshine and this game is but ugly. Nintendo World Report gave it a 7 out of 10 but I would love it if they gave the PS2 and Xbox like a, a 1 and 2 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, they should be embarrassed that this game came out after Sunshine. They should have tried to push it out the door before that because Sunshine is so much of a better looking game. Um, sold somewhere in the ballpark of 500000 on the GameCube. Not good. Mm -hmm. You can get a used copy for 20 bucks if you want. Uh, I don't think it's available on any download systems. But let's rank it, fellas. Basically. <laughs> Which game? Crash Bandicoot yeah. Wrath of Cortex. Wait, which one's. Is this in the main series? Yes. They have a collection on the Switch. Is it on that one? Is it on that? It's just one, two, three. I don't know. I don't know if that counts as... I think this is the fourth Crash Bandicoot game. 
No, because they released a brand new fourth brand Bandicoot years later. Like mm. a couple, a few years ago, they released a fourth. Maybe you're right. Brand new fourth. Maybe, one. maybe that's the way to get it now. If you want to, uh, you shouldn't. You shouldn't play any Crash Bandicoot games. So, do you guys think this goes above or below Spider-Man? I think that's our starting point. Yeah, the insane trilogy. No boy. Are we doing it for like Crash Bandicoot as a thing or just the game? Oh, oh right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean above above um, Spider Man. Yeah, I guess something probably stuff. I don't think you can go above Burnout though. Um, yeah. So somewhere like uh, above Spider Man, below Burnout, is it better than aggressive inline? I I just because of the era, I would choose to be more extreme. I like that. So I would take an aggressive inline. Wes, any objections? No, no, it's fine. Ranked. There it is. That makes it number 21 out of 25. Well. So let's go over to another GameCube game. Um, let's talk about Turok Evolution. This will be a quick one. Oh, you mean uh, Star Fox Adventures? We'll get to that. <laughs> it's, oh, no, there's so there's two, two, two Turok games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> uh, Turok Evolution was developed and published by Acclaim. It is a first-person West. Do you have a comment? I have a, I have a comment. I literally raised my hand. I didn't want to interrupt. But it looks like The Wrath of Cortex is not one of the trilogy. Hmm. So that's a different one. Okay. I don't know what it is. The mild disgruntlement of Cortex? Yeah, I don't know. But that is not part of the insane trilogy. So I don't know. Maybe the other... Crash Bandicoot game, games are good. Probably not. Have you played those? Probably not. Um, I've not also not played Turok. I don't need to play Turok to know it's trash. Um, it's a first-person shooter prequel to Turok Dinosaur Hunter on the N64, notably the worst N64 game. That's a bad game. Pretty widespread reviews. Like Some places uh, as high as an 8, other places as low as a 4. Ultimately, the aggregate score, pretty poor for this one. It's a garbage-looking game and a garbage franchise. And it's a pretty sad state for first-person shooters on GameCube so far because the only other first-person shooter game that has released on the system has been 007 Agent Under Fire, which is our last-ranked game. It was a truly terrible game. Until now. I think we put Turok at the bottom. <laughs> I mean, you know what? That's a hot take, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. Wes, any objections? None at all. Turok, once again, the worst game on the system. Jeez. Let's talk about something that's probably mildly more interesting. Star Fox? Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> so this is a... I actually, yeah, this is the GameCube thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be shooting from the hip a little bit on this one because I don't have very detailed notes about it. Uh, but I do know a little bit about this game. Uh, developed by Rare and published by Nintendo. Guys, this is the last Rare game that is going to be published on a Nintendo home console. Um, this game came out in uh, September 23rd of 2002 and the next day the next day Microsoft closed the deal that bought controlling interest in Rare well, is Rare still a thing? Or? yes they're still around Okay, so they're still like a wholly owned subsidiary of Microsoft like why do they make it nowadays? they made that Sea of Thieves game I think they did something oh, else more really? recently. They did that. Yeah, they were kind of stuck. Well, in the era that we're going to stick with, for, like the the Xbox, the next Xbox game that they make is grabbed by the Ghoulies, um, which is a play on words if you're British because the Ghoulies are the Nats, the Balls. The, give me another synonym. 
The 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 cajones. The cajones. The fellas. <laughs> the garlic. <laughs> I like that. Um, so apparently there's a, a, a sort of bidding war because at the time there was um, at least in Nintendo communities a a bit of an uproar. They're like, hey, they lost Rare. Rare had been a second party development studio for Nintendo. They were making exclusive Nintendo stuff. Now that Microsoft bought them, Microsoft's got their own console, they're going to only make Xbox things. And Rare was a really big player for Nintendo on the Super Nintendo, on the N64. But uh, apparently there was a sort of a, a bidding war when at the time the, the general consensus was that Nintendo didn't even make an attempt to try to keep this studio in-house to make games for them. Um, but between, uh, like, Nintendo was in on it, also uh, Activision and Microsoft, and Microsoft ultimately ended up winning, because how do you outbid Microsoft? Not not possible for a company like Nintendo, or Activision for that matter. I mean, because Microsoft much, owns like. Activision now. Right. I mean, I'm just looking at their what they released in the past let's call it decade, this is what they've done. They've done a Killer Instinct game, mm -hmm. something called Connect Sports Rivals, Rare Replay, which I'm guessing is a repackage of their old games. It is. The Sea of Thieves game, you mentioned, which came out in 2018, and a Battletoads game. Oh, that's right, they did that. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Not so, like, you know, no I'm sure I've heard of anything that they've been doing. At the time, like, Rare, Rare had that reputation in that time of, of making some of the most beautiful-looking games for Nintendo, but, yeah, they're, like... I think like I a lot of this is like uh, uh, secondhand information and like revisionist, like people remembering what was happening at the time, um, mm -hmm. rather than like actual like hard facts. But a lot of the uh, scuttlebutt about what was gone is like the the overhead costs of working with new tech was getting to be too much for Rare to handle on their own. So they needed to sell, so they had someone to provide more capital for these projects. Um, at the time, it was thought Nintendo wasn't even in on it. Turned out they were, but after they sold, a lot of the founders, guys like Chris Stamper, end up leaving Rare and doing their own thing. Um, so Rare wasn't even the same company after Microsoft bought them out. And one of the other sort of urban legends around the purchase is that when Microsoft executives, whoever they may have been, were touring. Rare development studios after they bought them there's like a, a Donkey Kong country poster on the wall and the guy the Microsoft exec was, was so oblivious to video games like oh you guys made Donkey Kong that means we own Donkey Kong now right and noted S tier franchise for Nintendo yeah. but who, who knows if it ever even actually happened just kind of a a story that somebody told one time it could be some urban legends mm -hmm. some Salty former developers. Yeah. One of the other urban legends around this game is that uh, the the Star Fox characters were sort of shoehorned into this thing. So this this game started development as an N sixty four game um, called Dinosaur Planet, and the urban legend is that the the main character was like a fox like character, and Miyamoto saw the game in action and it was like oh that kind of looks like Star Fox why don't we put Star Fox in this game so it's got a franchise and that's how it became Star Fox Adventures because it's not like a Star Fox game there are points where you do fly around in a ship and shoot things but it's more of like an interstitial between your actual moments of gameplay you're able to get into a ship and fly around I kind of was fast forwarding through a 
uh, Let's Play of this a while ago. Because I think I actually was going to bring this up on a previous one, but I got the month wrong. Hmm. So this is sort of something I remember looking at months ago. But yeah, it was like, it's basically dinosaur action-adventure game. It has yeah. literally fucking nothing to do with Star Fox. And I think it's compared a lot to Legend of Zelda. One of the things at the time that people were calling it was Zelda with fur. It's not even real. Mm-hmm. Star Fox game. And I think it's also a bit um, of a mistake to compare it to a Zelda because you're not... You're, you're, you're engaging in sort of like this action combat as you would in like Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Uh, and you're going through... Because like sort of like semi puzzly, isn't like as complex as a Legend of Zelda uh, segments of the game, um, but you're not really like gaining things like new tools that will open up new areas of the, the world for you. They're not really like combining. Okay, we got like the hammer here and the hook shot here. Now you go into another dozen dungeon where you're going to use the both of them. It doesn't really follow the Zelda formula of like like adventure gaming kind of stuff. Um, it is more of an action game. Um, I guess like just, just like the kind of the basic stuff. It is a third person, uh, like behind the back, not like permanently behind the back. You have some camera control, uh, rather than getting to like rather than like arcade shooter. So it wasn't what people wanted from a Star Fox game. And this is like the, the the follow-up, the next Star Fox game after Star Fox 64, which is a beloved game, uh, probably regarded as the best Star Fox game by a lot of people. And the follow-up was him swinging around a staff, and now he's got a girlfriend who rides a Triceratops. It was, it was kind of like this, this weird turn for the series. And, you know, also early days of the internet, so people were able to express their, their vitriol immediately, which if they... They did, and they still do, mm. and there was an overreaction. Uh, I don't think the game is that bad. It reviewed all right. You think it would be better remembered if it just simply wasn't a Star Fox game? Probably. Probably. Oh, and I, I forgot to look up any sales numbers. Uh, I don't. It doesn't crack the top 10 of best-selling GameCube games. I don't even think it cracked the top 15 of best-selling GameCube games. So... Uh, also not available in any sort of download system, not available as a, as a remake. I mean, it's a pretty isolated game onto the system. So one way to play it, and that's to hook up your old GameCube. It says by July 2006 it sold 1.2 million units. Okay, so it broke the million mark. Yeah. Which makes sense. That's not so bad. That's not really that bad at all. Yeah. Um, let's rank this thing. Where do you think it goes? I think... So it, to, to go into the top ten... Above Agent Under Fire. <laughs> <laughs> to go into the top ten, it's got to go above Gauntlet Dark Legacy. Do we think is a better game than Gauntlet Dark Legacy? I think no. No. I mean, well, this game does not look great. Wes, any thoughts? I, uh... Yeah, it, it's Gauntlet now. In the, uh, All right, so, so how about <laughs> the next game after that is Super Monkey Ball? Does Star Fox go above Monkey Ball 1 and 2? Or do we appreciate I don't even game? think no. I mean, Super Monkey Ball is a good game, genuinely fun game. So do we? Okay, so so let's 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 drop down a couple. How about Wave Race? I'm fine with that. Yeah, I, I, I like Wave Race, but I think Star Fox is going to get more mileage out of that one. So one point two million sales. You know, mm-hmm. that's it's not nothing. So we need to figure out where it goes in between Monkey Ball and Wave Race, and the only thing standing in its way is NBA Street Volume One. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, you think, do you think we're doing this totally scientifically? 
Is Starbucks better or worse than NBA Street? I mean, if I had to play one of those, I'm playing NBA Street, but that's just me. I don't know. Any objections, Wes? I, I don't care. <laughs> there it is. Starbucks, a respectable 13. Okay, there you go. Lucky number. Uh, let's talk. We've got two more games to get through here. Let's go to something a little bit easier before we get to the big one, and that is uh, Capcom versus SNK2. It was developed and published by Capcom, as you would expect. It is a fighting game featuring a ton of Street Fighter characters, plus a bunch of SNK characters I don't know. Uh, It's the only fighting game that we've talked about outside of Super Smash Bros. Melee. There is not a whole lot on this system. By most accounts, it is a really good technical fighter, but not good on the GameCube because of controller issues. Uh, there's button layout issues because the GameCube doesn't have like the, the diamond uh, layout for the buttons. It's more got like a, a, a center button and a couple things and the, the, the buttons surrounding it rather than a traditional one. This is a, a game for, for a, probably like a quote-unquote pro controller that didn't really exist at the time. Yeah, or like a, an arcade fighting stick, something like that. It's sad too because the SNES controller would have been perfect for this. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's also... Um, the, the C stick on the GameCube, it's not like a full like second analog stick, it's a little nub, so that's probably going to cause some issues as well, if anything is mapped to that Also, it doesn't move around like a regular analog game. Right, it's, yeah, it's got that hex around it. Yeah, it kind of snaps and then shoots back. Mm-hmm. So, as a result, it reviewed pretty poorly on the system, on an average of 20 points lower, uh, on a scale of 100, than the, the average. The Dreamcast version got better reviews. Yeah. Oof, that hurts. A that's, used, that's rough. And a used copy will run you about 60 bucks. So uh, I'm, I'm not putting this game below Turok, because Turok is always unplayable garbage. Um, I mean, I love these Capcom crossover fighters. I was actually going to mention, um, what was it, Tatsunoko versus Capcom, when you were talking yes. about the Mega Man Zero, because the model there is basically the model for Zero in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, do we think it's better than Agent Under Fire? Yeah. Yeah, gotta be way better. How about how, how about Spider Man? Spider Man's a good. Yeah, better than Spider Man. Better than Spider Man, better than aggressive inline. Yeah. Okay. What what less? Uh, oh, keep going. You're good. Better than Burnout. I'll put it right around Burnout. I feel like I'm not gonna make a glowing defense of this game. I, I think if the biggest note here is that the controller sucks. Like that's a shame. This is probably a really good game. Okay, there it is. That puts it uh, at number twenty-one out of twenty-eight. And last up, you guys, Animal Crossing. Mm-hmm. And the first Animal Crossing released on the GameCube in September of 2002. Uh, it is actually a port, uh, an upgraded port of an N64 game. The N64 game only released in Japan. It was really late in the N64 life cycle, so they moved it over to the GameCube. Also, for some uh, tech reasons, the N64 had an add-on that... Uh, was constantly delayed and canceled, so um, it wasn't able to use all of the features that it would have gotten from that N64 DD. So, put it on the GameCube. Uh, developed by Nintendo EAD, of course, and published by Nintendo. This game was directed by Katsuya Aguchi and uh, Hisashi Nagami. Um, if you don't know them, get to know them. They're big deals. Uh, they run a lot of shit at Nintendo now. Um, what's Animal Crossing? It's like a dollhouse game. Yeah, essentially. Uh, it's also just it's described sometimes as a simulation game. I mean, maybe. I think like 
simulation game to me has an implication that you are engaging with something that has maybe more directed goals like you want to um, uh, go to a job and like live this fake life kind of thing like the sims but in, in animal crossing you just kind of like do whatever you want you can like upgrade your house but the only reason yeah. to upgrade your house is to decorate your house more so it's going back into that dollhouse sort of yeah, you essentially have your island and you're decorating your island. It's, it's a very low impact sort of, you know, slice of life kind of game where the only objective is just to, you know, immerse yourself in this little world with all the other villagers that you live with and, yeah. to, you know, do things. You gather your resources, uh, you decorate, you add residents, you go talk to the, the little weirdos. Uh, in this game, there's a max 16 residents in your village, not an island. In this game, you just kind of like get this chunk of a village, and when you get to the border, you just can't go any further. Um, but there's not really like a point, an objective. The goals are what you make of them. It uses the GameCube internal clock and calendar for things like events and seasons. Even in this uh, first version of the game, there are events for like Halloween, and uh, they call it the Harvest Festival and Toy Day. I think they also did one uh, for Fourth of July. It's like called Summerfest or something like that. But like the, the seasons change and the scenery will change. Um, there's a, a, an NES game collection. And like addition to getting like all like the, the furniture and all that sort of stuff, you can collect NES games um, get through, through different methods in the game. Some of them are just kind of gifted to you, others you get from uh, events or from other villagers. But games like Balloon Fight, Baseball, Clue Clue Land, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong 3, Golf, Pinball, Punch-Out, Tennis, Wario's Woods. So not very many of the good ones, <laughs> but they're, they're just like games available within these games. Uh, you could also get like Ice Climber and Mario Brothers. Not Super Mario Brothers, but Mario Brothers when you're on the single screen and you're pushing each other into the crabs. Um, and you got those through the, the e-card readers. You also get different items in the game through the e-card reader. Uh, there's a big emphasis on multiplayer in this game. You can have up to four human residents in your village. Uh, pretty much works the same way it does now, where the, the human villager residents are able to alter things on the island at will whenever they're playing. You can visit someone else's village on your GameCube if they bring their memory card. You put it into your GameCube, and you need like, a little bit of spare data on yours to transfer over, um, which is not a big deal. But you, you can go to their village and look around. You can get items. You can leave items for them. You can talk to their animal residents to see if you get them to show up in your village and move in. Uh, if you do get them to show up, it will prompt one of your villagers to move out if your village is already full. Um, and it's kind of random. So you got to be careful if you're inviting other residents onto yours. They're not moving out. They're getting murdered. <laughs> Just brutally murdered. They're, they're like, look at these brand new roses. They look lovely. <laughs> There's GBA connectivity. You can use the link cable to connect your GBA, and what will happen is uh, Kappa will appear on his little boat uh, on your island, and he or on your in your village, and he will take you to an island that you can do like little things on. Uh, there, there's uh, an exclusive animal buddy that lives on the island. You can leave tools from like a bug nest so they can catch some bugs or amuse themselves or something. It's the only place you can get coconuts on this island that travels to. There's a little beach house that you can decorate, you can fish. You can actually download the island onto your GBA and give fruit to the animal resident and he will 
drop bells. You she will drop bells and then collect when you hook it back into your uh, GameCube. Um, you can share the island with other people through the GBA to GBA link cable, like you were trading Pokemon. Uh, there's also some features with the clothing. Uh, when you go to the, the clothing, clothing shop in the GameCube game, you can download the pattern design tool onto your GBA and work on designs on your Game Boy Advance and then put them back into the GameCube version so you can use those patterns on clothes. So they, they emphasize a lot of different connectivity with a bunch of different methods in this game. Um, it doesn't look particularly good because it is a port of an N64 game. But I think it, it is a, a neat little signal of a, a shifting, maybe a growing philosophy at Nintendo, where they're like trying to build themselves as more of like a lifestyle brand. Um, they, they never get fully on board with online gaming, even today they're not really fully on board with online gaming. It's not really part of their identity. And they're very good at like knowing what their identity is. They see gaming as more of like a social experience, something you're supposed to be doing together in person. Uh, like all this connectivity is very sloppy. You have to have all these GBAs and cables and cables that go to your GameCube and cables that go to your GBAs together. Uh, an e-reader that goes into your GBA port. Uh, the actual e-reader cards. There's a lot of stuff and wires and attachments. But they're trying to like build like this ecosystem that's going to keep people engaged with their stuff. And they try to do that a little bit with the Wii and the DS where they're reaching more to a casual market. But the Switch is where they really like hit here's the one thing that we have and you can do all these different things with it where it becomes more like the, the lifestyle brand you have your one switch you play it on your TV you play it on your couch you bring it with you you play it with your friends so kind of, kind of like a, an interesting precursor to where they try to ultimately end up with uh, mm -hmm. the switch sells nearly 3 million, kind of in the ballpark of 3 million. I have a couple different sources. One was saying like 3.3 million. One was saying like 2.78 million. Uh, makes it about the seventh best-selling GameCube game. Less than Luigi's Mansion. Mm -hmm. Just saying. But a, quite a debut for a new IP on the system. Yeah. And this is like the third new IP. I mean, I, don't, I guess we don't count Luigi's Mansion. Because it's not really a new IP, just a new game starting a familiar character. But like, you also get Pikmin on the system and Eternal Darkness, and all three really well received so far. Yeah. So it's a it's been an interesting system for new and uh, new, new franchises trying yeah. to things out. Yeah. yeah. But we gotta rank Animal Crossing. Uh, do you have anything you want you want to say about Animal Crossing before we get to the? Oh no, it just uh, it sold really well, and we don't have to get into it, but. There will be a year where this is by far and away the greatest game of the year, and it will be an installment in this franchise. We do still have to uh, tier rank the Animal Crossing franchise. It's S tier. We still got our tier rank. <laughs> the Animal Crossing franchise. It sold 42 million copies. We still have to tier rank the Animal Crossing franchise. But like, even as a starting point here, if you're just looking at the initial... yeah. Uh, release. I would consider this quote unquote humble origins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolute like basement lowest you can possibly even consider is B tier. Like this, this is starting out hot. Mm -hmm. It's got our, it's this this is a got a really good chance to be a top tier franchise for Nintendo. It's yeah, it's a very good thing that they took a chance on this one. Now, when we're doing these rankings for these GameCube games and everything, are we going ranking it like we do our 
other ones that we do on the mini even, show? Even more scientific. They're doing this super scientific. Because I, I, I'm like, are we no, no, based on the like, quality of the game or how successful the game was? We're not rating like, the doing? Frame. Oh, well, I mean, I guess it's a combination. Of I mean, I think so. I'm, I'm going to cover up the mic. We're shooting from that. We're making this up as we go. <laughs> yeah, just wondering. Because, I mean, this this game did really well, but how good is the actual game? <laughs> oh, it's, it's quite good. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, the Animal Crossing formula hasn't changed a whole lot. They'll change the settings. They'll add more to it. But the core concept is is been similar throughout like I think there's five installments now. Six it looks like there's like spin-offs and other mini games yeah. like one called City Folk and That's yeah, that's the Wii game. Wild World. That's the They're, DS game. The one the ones that I know of by name are New Leaf and New Horizons. Yeah. Those are the three big ones. And it'll be another decade before we get New Leaf and then about another decade before New Horizons. So Yeah, this is I they don't of, yeah, they don't do a lot with this one. Wanna see an Animal Crossing zombie survival game? Oh, the zombies have invested your home that you built. I mean, I think like <laughs> they, there's some weird origin stories to this that I haven't like fully been able to research yet. But the concept of this game started out as a sort of uh, adventure RPG with these animal friends that live in a village with you. Um, but for whatever reason, that that concept never really worked out. So it just became like this simulation dollhouse sort of game. <laughs> um, but it would be really interesting to actually have. An RPG with your animal friends. It would probably work a lot like Pokemon because your uh, your your party consists of the ones that you're able to collect to move into your village. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so um, where are we thinking right now on this list? This is a top ten GameCube game. Yeah, definitely. Easily. There's no way it's not. What's like four? What's what's? Yeah, four I was five? about to say. Well, how is it going? Top five. Resident Evil is there. Uh, our, our top five right now. If we want to entertain the top five, is Smash Bros. Melee, the Resident Evil remake. Mario Sunshine, Eternal Darkness, and Star Wars Rogue Leader. That's all tough. Number six is Pikmin, and seven is Luigi's Mansion. Okay, it's not that tough. <laughs> <laughs> I would bump Rogue Leader out of the top five. I would do the same. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. But I'd, what was four? Eternal Darkness. Yeah, yeah it's, it's better than Eternal Darkness. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, I think that this is number, a number, four. A number four. This is the number third, three? The fourth. I don't, I don't think we're putting it above Mario Sunshine. Okay. Like, here we go. Animal Crossing. I mean, I'm not an Animal Crossing fan. I, I got the one for the Switch, did not play it very long. I just, I don't like it. I fall asleep playing this game. Oh, that's great, though. It's so relaxing. Ugh. Just, ugh. A lot of people want that in their life, you know? A lot of people struggle to get good sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's their aim for the game. <laughs> there we go. There it is. That's uh, that's all the GameCube games. Yeah. Um, th there were uh, just uh, really briefly here because we've been going for a long time already. Um, really briefly, there were a couple of other. I had two other titles to bring up. Yeah. Oh my god! Oh, why, why don't you do yours first? I'm I still got music in. I'm not gonna say. Well, rather movies this time. Right? <laughs> no. Uh, well, Kingdom Hearts. Kingdom Hearts is a huge game. Yep. Mm. First installment of Kingdom Hearts comes out. Um, it's a crossover between. Square and Disney, which is interesting. They make kind of like a hack and slash RPG. It's a big series of games, and I know some people are obsessed with like the lore behind it. The lore got weird with that game. Like it's yeah. just it's bizarre. Um, this this is one of those games where I have fond memories of, but recently, like probably close, probably over a year ago, I tried playing it again because I got the collection for the PS4. 
because it came out finally Kingdom Hearts 3. Mm-hmm. And I remember playing this and going, this is trash. Mm-hmm. Like, I, this is not a good game. Like, I have fond memories of the, of the game, but yeah, it, I did not enjoy going back to it. I um, rented this game um, when that was, was fairly new, probably a, maybe a year after it came out. Because I wanted to see what the fuss was like. It was a really popular game. It might be, if we looked up numbers, it might be the best-selling game of the month. Yeah, um, it sold six million copies. It, it probably is. Yeah, it's got Disney characters in it. I mean, it's just got go nuts. I remember renting it, and you start off and like you're on a beach, you gotta do some mild platforming, and then like you some get some Final Fantasy characters are there. Yeah, and then, then then you have to get sent to this area where there's a bunch of doors and these little black orbs that follow you around. You gotta slash them with your your blade. And when I got to that section, I was like, "This is unplayable trash." And I brought it back, and I've never played it since. This, this is a garbage game in a garbage franchise. Like, this is... If we were ranking it, it wouldn't go below Turok, but I'd think about it. I enjoyed 2. I, so I'd guys, like to go back and play 2 again. This is a quote-unquote critical acclaim. I mean, it got, I think, at least a 95% on average on runs. Or not runs, but on Metacritic. Um, it was nominated for a slew of awards that they will all lose to another game. But... Yeah, it's like the 12th best-selling PlayStation game. There, there's a game that the came out PSG on the game. DS for it that I think is one of the worst games I've ever played in my life. Yeah, uh, I think that's... It's like 365 days or... It was a dumb yeah. title, but it was the most boring thing ever. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, as... as uh, people who are very vocal about video games, like as new generations come up, and, uh, and as they do, as young people do, they like to trash... Things that came out before the before their formative years, and there's you know a, a small group of people that will say things like, "Oh, Super Metroid isn't a good game. Oh, Green of Time isn't a good game. They're wrong, but don't worry about it. They'll come around." There are people who will be coming for Kingdom Hearts, and they will be correct because this is a bad game. Yeah, it's bad and a bad franchise. It was never good. I haven't played it, so I'm not going to defend it. But I can tell you that on paper, mm-hmm. it's regarded as one of the best games of this year, which is very very strange. Yeah. Again, it could just be that it's the thing people wanted. They wanted an Enix, Square Enix game melded together with Disney. It's, it's like a... They're, they're you know, reviewing the brand rather than the quality of the gameplay. It's like Minority Report, right? Mm-hmm. When you're telling me Spielberg and Tom Cruise made a movie together and it's just kind of garbage. It's very <laughs> mid. <laughs> it's probably what Kingdom Hearts is. Uh, but at least that movie was fun to watch. Yeah. For yeah. all, what, four hours? It was a long movie. Yeah. I have one more game to talk about that I think is actually pretty noteworthy. Uh, Battlefield 1942. Uh, came out for, mm. the play, or for, for the computer for the PC. Okay. Uh, for PC sales, this is kind of bonkers. It's all three million copies. Almost what we just mentioned. Yep, yep. This is one of those like MMA or suppose MMA like um like like massive online games you can play together. Oh, with, like Nova. Sixty four people and just a big open world okay. with tanks and planes and um, Hot Wheels. They, yeah, stop. <laughs> different. Yeah, Hot Wheels can get in. Then you have the different character classes, right? So it's like scout, tank, and like a engineer, uh, stuff like that. I mean, yeah, it's like a fucking iconic series. They like get this. Like the most recent installment is Battlefield twenty forty two, which came out last year. It sold seven million units, and it's regarded as a failure. Oh snap! So like this, this is franchise is, is pretty ginormous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like. This is this is like the fucking Call of Duty model uh, that's so popular now. Mm-hmm. So worth worth mentioning. Three million on, on a PC is really really good number for sure. 
I had two other PS2 games. One of them, Burnout 2, Point of Impact, was for, P- for the PS2. This will come out later on the GameCube. We'll talk about it a little bit more then. And then the other one was Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoons. Wes, you ever played this one? I have not, but I, I haven't ever heard anybody say anything bad about the game. So, like, the PS2, as far as, like, mascots or action platformers go, it was Jack and Daxter, Ratchet and Clank, and then Sly Cooper was, like, the guy, like, hey, I'm kind of here, too. And like you're saying, like these are usually pretty well regarded games, but it's not a franchise. I think God, I think there was like three installments on the PS2, and then the franchise kind of went away. And I think it did get like a uh, HD remaster re-release on PS4 relatively recently, the past few years. Um, but yeah, always like regarded as a, a fun game and a fun series, but never really had uh, staying power for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. But that's it. That's video games. That, that must be the busiest month of games yeah, we've had in nuts. a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, next month will be quite busy as well. Yeah. I guess this is the time of year when, when games are getting dropped. Kids are back in school. Christmas approaching. Mm. They got shit to do but play video games. Where do we want to go next? We can fly right through music. I'm just going to mention the albums and not really talk about them. That's cool. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Let's get to it. Uh, Beck's Sea Change came out. That was probably the biggest album of the month. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh, oh, game of the month. Animal Crossing? Yeah. yeah. Animal Crossing, cool. Alright, Cyber House, Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I would rather play Kingdom Hearts than Animal Crossing. You're a bad person. Uh, so, Beck's Sea Change. Okay the, the big hit on this is that if you like Beck, you know for him for his like, lo fi weirdness. And this is a much more relaxed, polished record um, where he's not doing any of his usual kitsch and quirk. Uh, very well received, great records. Got like I guess I'm doing fine and, and Lost Cause were both big songs. Nice to see Beck mature and prove that he's got a lot in his arsenal aside from just weirdo songs that you know him like Devil's Haircut and shit. Uh, Iron and Wine released the Creek Drink, the, uh, the Creek Drank of the Cradle. This is a one man lo-fi guitarist uh, makes coffee shop style music. He'll have a bigger album after this, but it's pretty good. Very like a uh, very ASMR kind of music if you listen to it like he's like hushed but he's like whispering you feel like the microphone's like an inch from your face when you hear him recording it you hear his fingers like sliding on the guitar strings it's very um immediate production low at least now called trust i talked about low before as being a boring band and gosh at it again with a kind of boring record <laughs> well received people like it it's 64 minutes of boring in my opinion i'm a bit harsh <laughs> Ariel Pink, who was uh, sort of like a art student, psych pop weirdo, he releases. It's called Ariel Pink. The album is called um, House Arrest, but this will become known as his Haunted Graffiti Project. I think it's the fifth installment in it. Really, really good. It sounds like you unearthed '60s psychedelia that has been like found in a trash can somewhere. It's very, very strange. I'm not doing it justice. Peter Gabriel released Up. His first album in 10 years, like, this album was not that well received at the time, but this is like, whatever IMAX is for your ears is what this album is. Like, I'm admittedly an apologist for Peter Gabriel. Love him. The man's amazing, except when he's driving drunk. And this album slays. Like, just listen to the music. It's so, I don't know, so high def. It's so interesting. It's very much a headphone album. Um, and I get it. His lyrics are kind of like, like, silly and kind of out of touch with reality he's very like he thinks he's so profound but he's, he's frankly not 
and he's been working on this album for 10 years so a lot of this material is super old and it's not really like caught up with the times but as far as Peter Gabriel goes he's one of the most interesting composers around it's really really good OK Go uh, releases their debut they're from Chicago it's a pop punk band or sorry pop, power pop group they've become known for making all those viral hits like here we go again you know we're on the treadmills and shit Yes, that's yeah. that band. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah this, this is their, their debut. It's a good record. Like, there's a couple of really good songs on here, like Get Over It and Don't Ask Me. Um, I like them. And, and as a rewind, if you like Power Pop, this has been a really solid couple of years for you. You've had Weezer's Return. They're back to making, making good music. The American Hi-Fi album, Ozma, Ben Foles, New Pornographers, and Phantom Planet all have released albums in the past two years, and they're great slaps of Power Pop. Hip-hop. Bus Driver releases uh, Temporary Forever. Um, I like that. Okay, he he just raps really fast. I don't know if I really enjoyed this this album all that much. He's got some good producers on it, but um, his lyrics are just like I don't know. I probably should have spent more time listening to it to really get it. Mr. Lift releases I Phantom. Uh, this actually got really good reviews. It's largely produced by LP, like E L P, who runs Def Jux. This album came out on Def Jux. And Peanut Butter Wolf releases Jukebox 45s, which is basically a compilation of Stone's Throw uh, artists, but mostly Mad Lib, who is like probably the centerpiece of the record label, and it's good hip-hop instrumentals. But Peanut Butter Wolf. Yeah. yeah. Some yeah. of these names. <laughs> peanut Butter Wolf. Um, it's a wolf made out of peanut butter, or? P.D. Death. Is that his name? That's their fans call him. I believe it's a wolf that eats peanut butter, but I mean... Is not. it named Peanut Butter? Like, it's just... That could be. Hey, peanut butter, why right? come over? It's like, peanut oh. butter's not a name for a wolf. Yeah, that's weird. That's a name for a fish. Yeah. Into the punk, dog. Into the punk category. We're flying through these guys. Into the punk, Mercury Program, um, A Day to Learn the Language. Um, this is a band from Gainesville. They make post-rock music, which is these kind of sprawling instrumentals with twinkly guitars. Really, really pretty. I love this album so much. This is a good go-to-sleep kind of music. Um, interesting because they use a vibraphone. You know what vibraphones are? Like the big whole thing with the little balls and you hit them with the, the sticks and then that mm-hmm. makes that nice it's a unique sound you don't hear in music and popular music really um, and it works so well for what they do because like the guitar work is very tight and intricate and then you have these kind of like twinkling sounds going over it it's like adult contemporary for children um, very very good music and Tsunami Bomb releases The Ultimate Escape. Tsunami Bomb is a female-fronted pop-punk outfit, and I like these guys a lot. Really, really good record. Um, I would I would just, I don't know, like go listen to it. Like Russian Roulette's a good song on there if, if you need a specific track to listen to. I was listening to this album contemporaneously. It was like one of the few records I would just like... I knew each track, track by track. I didn't need to really revisit it much. Great record. Electronic music, you've got Underworld releasing um, 100 Days Off. This is a British trance duo. They've been active since the early 90s. I like this. This is very sophisticated as far as trance goes. This is not the kind of like raver candy music. It's um, high BPM, as you can imagine, for trance. and Just really nice soundscapes. They do a really good job of like, um, if a track's eight minutes long, they do such a nice job of weaving in and out the components of it. It feels very, very smooth as you listen through the tracks. And it's very upbeat. Very, very nice. I like it. Ladytron releases Light and Magic. We actually talked about their album 604 a few months ago. Not a few years ago at this point. Um, it's like Electro Clash. It's like really gothic electro pop music. Um, it just felt a little long. It's like 60 minutes long and 15 tracks. 
you know, they made they made short condensed tunes. They just didn't need to give you fifteen of them. They could have done ten and had a forty minute crisp record, and that would have been that. Thievery Corporation releases The Richest Man in Babylon. Uh, it's their third album. They're from actually from DC. You would think this is a British group, but they're from DC. They make down tempo like dub. It's good. It's, it's fine record. I don't know. I, I wouldn't really say much about it. And probably my favorite electronic album of the month is from this guy Robert Hood, who is an uncle point blank. Robert Hood makes the sound you guys know and love is Detroit techno. Uh, he is one of the most important artists in that scene. So what do you get? Is it shattering line? windows? No, it is immediate in your face, uh, high BPM thumping um, with very little. Like when I'm talking about Underworld giving you all of this nice layering and textures, he has no time for layering and textures. It is just in your face club music, just just like throbbing dance music. It's great. Um, I really, really like it. And a wild. Do you have any? Do you guys have any albums? Should uh, anything no, to say about no albums? I did not have any time to. <laughs> there, are, there are ten GameCube and GBA games. All right, then let's. Actually, this was a good month for metal. Um, again, I'm not going to spend any, that much time on any of them. But Porcupine Tree releases in Absentia. They're a British prog group. I almost feel like they shouldn't be in the metal category. If you listen to their music, it's very, very melodic. Very, um, I don't know, long-winded, epic prog music with very little actual quote-unquote heavy. Isis. Releases Oceanic, the band you guys know and love as ISIS. <laughs> big, big fan of ISIS. Yeah, the unfortunately named for the time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, this, this album Oceanic is, is very important as a transition. They had their previous album was like Signal Slash 05 or something. This is one where they've really um, melded together the post-rock scene with the, I guess you would call sludge stoner metal. Um, and, and made a really interesting sound that, um, again, is very cinematic. It has these big swells. It's, it's very beautiful. Um, again, a, a lot of interesting, layered, heavy music. Uh, a really good album to listen to for people, especially people who think they don't like heavy metal. It actually might be a really good album to start with. The Band Disturbed, at least Believe. This is their second album. I'll stick up for Disturbed. This is like... A, like a, a prototypical new metal band of this era, but there's something about Disturbed that makes them seem a little less cheesy than their uh, contemporaries. Tracks like Prayer and Liberate are really, really good. Um, I just genuinely like this. And it's also, it's about 47 minutes long. I mean, not, not, not overly long. It doesn't feel overly long. And all of the tracks are interesting in their own way. Probably the wildest album of the month and one that I think is truly rewarding uh, today is the day sadness will prevail. It's two and a half hours long. Wow. This is a Nashville grindcore noise band. You know, oftentimes you think grindcore is like 30, 30 tracks in 20 minutes. Ship on three CDs? It, yeah, it basically fills out three CDs. Um, it's, it's a long one. Um, and people often, when they go back and look at this album, they're like, this is a genius record if you trim it down to 70 minutes to one CD. But then the question becomes like, what do you cut? Where do you cut? Because mm. um, all of it is, is fascinating and, and, and interesting. It's so raw and disturbing and sad. Um, it just it feels like it's a truly haunted record. They have a habit of looping in um, a lot of interesting quotes from films, um, like diatribes from like serial killers, not serial killers, but like murderers. One of the guys is someone that was in, in, in Death Row. Uh, a sample of a recording he made. 
one of the men who was blamed for the death of the boys in the Memphis Three, of the Memphis Three, like they literally used that sample to lead into this just really crushing song. Um, it's all all over the place. It's so fascinating, an album. It's very challenging, and I think nobody would like it. But I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff there. In Flames, the band In Flames releases Reroute to Remain. This is one of the core Swedish mellow death bands. Swedish, Sweden is, of course, constantly producing melodic death records. And this is what many would consider their last quote-unquote good album. Uh, this band pisses off their fan base so, so hard after this record by stop, by basically stop making death metal. And they start making corn-influenced new metal, which is like, you're in Sweden. Why are you trying to sound like fucking corn? Mm. Like, you guys made this scene of really interesting, dynamic, heavy music, and then you're basically deciding to go with the whims of America. Um, I, that, that's what the... What if we sounded more like Tampa? Yeah, yeah, no. It, it, but the thing is, is like, they just came out with a new album this year, and everyone's like, this is a return to form. This might as well be the follow-up to Reroots Remain. Um, Nothing's happened since 2002. Yeah, they, nothing really should have. No, no, people call... The, um, this, the next album is called Soundtrack to Your Escape, but the fan base calls it Soundtrack to Selling Out. <laughs> it's kind of a shitty thing to say, but hey, you know, you know, when in flames, uh, maybe stop doing what you're doing. Um, and, and the, the new album is actually really, really good. I like it a lot. It does sound like they picked up here. Um, I don't know why it took them fucking 12 years to do it. Um, a band called Bonzilla, really song called Gateway. Bonzilla is, um, they're like kind of the prototypical stoner metal band. They're from Wisconsin. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of really. It's, it's actually pretty melodic, but heavy, laborious, slow tempos. Um, really good music. Again, this is actually, I know it's a band called fucking Bongzilla, but this is one of those bands that probably would be really good entry point for people wanting to catch up on metal. If all you think that metal is is like Black Sabbath or Metallica or something, and you want to hear what a more modern sound of metal might be, you know, fucking Gateway by Bongzilla is, is you know, it's a good, good place to start. CKY releases Infiltrate, Destroy, Rebuild. You guys know who CKY is? No. They came up around the whole um, jackass okay. thing. Their drummer is the brother of Bam Margera. Hmm. You would think these guys are a new metal outfit. They are not. They actually have a really great sound. Very nice sound. It's more inspired by like classic rock. Um, and I think maybe grunge. Uh, there's really not a band that sounds like them, and I think that they're carried by these really amazing guitar leads um, that are just earworm, ad addictive uh, kind of tracks. Uh, Flesh into Gear and Escape from Hellview are really big songs on it. I totally would recommend this band. They are, they are very much like in the skate scene, so their music is on skate compilations or Tony Hawk soundtracks. Good band. And lastly, and oh gosh, this is such a good month, but this is another great record for the month. Shadows Fall releases The Art of Balance. They're from Massachusetts. They're also a mellow death band. They're a melodic death metal, but damn, they do it right. This is so, so good. I love this record. And what's cool about them, and the thing that I think a lot of the Swedish bands don't do, is that they incorporate American hardcore into their sound. So you get a lot of those like, really intense moments, a lot of American thrash and like breakdowns and shit. It's just a fun record. Um, I know I've spun it in its entirety, gosh five or six times now just at the gym. It's become a go-to like workout album for me. Love it, absolutely love it. And that ends 
the month Very of music. Cool. And if you needed an album of the month, I mean, yes. I'm going to go back to Peter Gabriel. It's weird to say, but Peter Gabriel's Up is, uh, again, it's, it is a Christopher Nolan film for your ears. Mm. Like, it is that fucking good. It's so, so nice. Very good. Uh, no movie of the month. Do I just, just rail them off real quick and say what they were? At least, yeah, unless there's anything you want to say. Was it just they were just really bad movies this oh, month? None, yeah, yeah, none of these were good. I, yeah, go ahead, rattle them off. City by the Sea. Not good. I did. I did watch that one. That's oh. not good. Yeah, forty-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. De Niro crime film. Uh, uh, if you want like a, a, a quick breakdown, yeah, feel free. Um, De Niro is a cop, and his estranged son gets into some trouble. Uh, accidentally uh, kills a guy in self-defense. Um, and then is on the run from police who are doing completely very poor police work. Kind of gets implicated in some other crimes they're after him for. Um, but it, the, the one interesting thing about the movie is the way it deals with uh, addiction. Because James Franco, who plays the De Niro's son in this movie, uh, is struggling with drug addiction. And it doesn't ever portray him or, or try to actively portray him as this sort of like low-life, deadbeat. Like, it, it treats his addiction like an illness. And there's a really interesting contrast to that Scorsese movie. Um, God, was, it, was it with Nick Cage that we talked about a couple years back? Bringing Out the Dead. Bringing Out the Dead. Yeah. Where, like, his his portrayal of uh, drug addiction is kind of like low-life, scum of the earth, people in the gutters, no redemption. Whereas, I can't even remember the name of the people who made this movie, but... It's, it's, very, it's very much a different attitude. It's a little bit more of an enlightened attitude. That said, not a good movie. Don't watch it. Yeah. Um, moving on, Swim Fan. Like a stalker psychological thriller. Got a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not a bad one. Uh, one of the best reviewed of the month, actually, is Barbershop. Something about Ice Cube has to inherit his father's barbershop. I actually kind of was interested in watching this movie. Um, it sounded like it would be a fun comedy, but I didn't care enough to watch mm. it. Um, I, don't, I think I've tried yeah. to sit through like Friday a couple of times. I can never make it all the way through. Friday's fun. It's got its moments. Mm. Yeah. I'm not a huge like Friday's an amazing movie guy, but I, I, I like it a lot. But he, he probably didn't have like guys like us in mind when he made the movie. Like, That's true. If it, yeah, if it's not obvious, you know, Which it's, is, it's totally fine. Largely, you know, black cast comedy. But yeah. that said, like, I think Coming to America transcends. Mm. All of that. Coming to America is just this absolutely wonderful film, but again, it's, it's also very much from a unique life perspective. Yeah. Uh, Igby Goes Down. I've seen this movie. Have you guys ever seen this movie? No. It's no. actually, I, I, would, I would say it's a hard one to watch, but I, I actually really enjoy it. Um, it's got, I believe, Karen and Rory Culkin in it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's a coming of age film about basically like the shitty lives of rich people. Mm. Um, kind of like if you stripped. Um, oh, what's his face? He's the guy that makes all the quirky films. Wes Anderson? Yeah, it's like if you took all of the, the quirk and kitsch out of Wes Anderson's stuff and just left um, violent physical abuse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 um, clocking in with a 0% on Rotten oh. Tomatoes. Ooh. Ballistics X vs. Sever. We have to watch this. Yeah, this is an Antonio Banderas action movie. That's oh, man. All I got. The director is named is in all capital letters Chaos, K A O S. <laughs> director that's like supposed to be meaningful and this is the person yeah delightful oh uh, what, what is this thing called ballistics colon x verse sever i believe they're supposed to be him and a rival assassin or trying to travel i assume murder things and <laughs> it doesn't really i don't know maybe they fall in love maybe they just kill each other who knows that'd be a great movie but i'd love to know what chaos has been up to right k-a-o-s the banger sisters came out 
it's like Goldie Hawn and Susan Sarandon movie. Okay. Forty-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I don't. Is that the same duo that was in Death Becomes Her? No, that was actually. Um, that was Goldie Hawn, right? Goldie Hawn and oh my god, she's the the greatest living actress, and now I'm totally Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Okay, not not the same duo. Probably not worth it. The Four Feathers. Um, it's a war drama with Heath Ledger. It's got forty two percent. That sounds awful. The Secretary, or you know, it's called Secretary. Right. I actually like this movie. Um, it has a seventy eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's about a kink relationship that develops between a boss and the new secretary he hires and I think it's supposed to show like the not Fifty Shades of Grey seductive but just like this is the dirty life of two people who have a weird subdom kink thing going on <laughs> it's good I actually really not a family film no no absolutely not a family film I, I don't know if it's NC-17 but there is a know. ton of graphic sex in it hmm. um, have you seen it? Or, no uh, Okay, that's all right. Uh, Sweet Home Alabama. The graphic sex was okay. It wasn't, it wasn't anything great. But I mean, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal. I mean, it's, what would you expect? And James Spader. This is not a couple you want to see. <laughs> 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 uh, Sweet Home Alabama, the highest grossing film of the year for what it's worth, $180 million. A month. year, month. <laughs> month, I'm sorry, I'm tired. Um, yeah, 38%. It's a Reese Witherspoon comedy. Yes. Lastly, you have Tuxedo. Uh, which is a Jackie Chan Jackie Chan actually of the show Jackie Chan 20% around today yeah. so, so not good and a worthwhile month to just say no we're not watching any right of this. let's let's go see something that came out in August again yeah. um, which makes me sad because you know he was doing like rush hour and stuff and then Jackie, he does tuxedo and he, like he, all the charm of Jackie Chan with his weird stunts and things isn't but like in the movie he's like record to this point. Yeah. It's a difference between having someone like Chris Tucker and um, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt as your co-star. Yeah. Right? Like, it's... I don't know. Yeah, he didn't have his uh, own Wilson. But, yeah. So, but that's okay. He'll be back. The cat's on the table now. This is great. Um, oh, yeah, animals interrupt podcasts all the time. Yeah. That's what they do. Now I'm trying to get away. So long. Get a but, so, you had a suggestion. This is not really talking about any of these movies. Uh, season six of South Park premiered. That it did. In September of 2002. Um, and, like, we talked about South Park in passing before. and mentioned, like, we talked about the movie and talked about specific things about the show. More in passing, we've talked to do lengthy tangents on this series. We've <laughs> talked about South Park probably more than any other media property we, except the course of the show. We haven't ever, outside of the movie, we haven't ever really taken... A time to this is our South Park segment. Yeah. <laughs> it's always just been tangential. Uh, which is kind of like, to set up here, like, this is a point where uh, the show has really found its voice. I think, like, starting in season three, they, they kind of figured out what the show was supposed to be and continued to grow in season four. Season five was a pretty experimental series uh, in general because season five, um, they moved the kids up into fourth grade, they changed the teacher. Garrison kind of got uh, uh, really get to more, even more of a side character and got the new t- teacher, Miss Chokes on Dick. They killed off Kenny, like actually for good. Uh, and actually all throughout season five, they, they didn't have the running gag where he died in every episode. Yeah. Rather than that, they, they killed him off in the final episode and season six picks up uh, after that and just kind of continues that arc going forward. And a lot of season six is them trying to reset and put things back things back to the way they were before 
season five where Garrison's going to become their teacher again, and they're going to bring back Kenny. So, but also they they bring into the fold a new character and literally do it. And the like TV shows get shit on all the time for trying to work in new characters yep. bluntly. And they're like, no, we're having a casting call among the existing cast. Right, like, they do like a bachelor stuff. Yeah, who's going to be the new? Who's going to be the new kid? Like, yeah, who's yeah. join the crew. So, uh, and, and and his butters. So to this point, yeah. butters was very much a background character. The biggest role I can think he'd have was like in, I think it was in season three where they had the meteor shower party, and he was uh, Stan was trapped in the basement with butters and Pip. And Pip was his character at the point. He was like the British kid. He wore a funny hat, and he was supposed to be like the the punching bag, the dork character that Butters would become. And Butters is a much better version. And because what, what happens to Pip? I don't know. He had his he had an episode that was dedicated entirely like a Great Expectations. Yeah, it was a Great Expectations period. A great episode. And and I think that was season five. But he after that he just got replaced. He's, he's he's just you'll gone. see him every once in a while. Yeah, he shows up in the background. But yeah, he hasn't had like a main. Not that I'm aware of. He hasn't had a main episode in a long, long time. But Butter was since the Kenny is out of the group because he died. Voiced by Matt Stone, by the way. Which, yeah. Or no, sorry, uh, yeah, Matt Stone. Matt Stone yeah. So he, he it's sort of like his way of getting more involved in the vocal work of the series. So it's not just the heavy lifting of. Yeah, so, so his um, his the the two series creators, Trey Parker, Matt Stone. Trey Parker also does the voice for Stan. Was Cartman, and then Matt Stone would do the voice for Kyle and Kenny, who's just muffled out Matt Stone. Mm-hmm. But uh, bringing uh, Butters into the main crew, he does the voice for for Butters, which yeah. uh, apparently, uh, allegedly, is just him doing an impression of someone else who's like involved with like a, like a, an associate producer or a writer or something. Uh, he's, he's doing this mean impression of someone else, and now it's just on the show. Nice. But yeah, I mean, I. Do, what, what do we want to get into about uh, season six here? Just quick, if we want to talk about the episodes, we can yeah. talk about them. Because there's only, there's 17, there's, some of them I don't have anything to say about really. But yeah, like the season starts with, knowing what we know now, uh, but the season starts with the episode Jared Has AIDS. Yeah, Jared in the subway. Yeah, yeah, Jared Fogel, n- now who is... Uh, Convicted child predator. Is he, yeah, he's serving life in prison, I'm sure, right, somewhere. Uh, for Yeah, for like sexually assaulting children. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, the whole thing was that um, he was making it seem like he lost his weight because he had AIDS, and it was just a miscommunication. Right? right. It's like he had people that were hired to help yeah, him. Helpers, not wasn't HIV positive. But they they keep on running that joke back over and over again. And my favorite part of the episode is just like when he's he's like you see Jared swinging a bat, and well, why won't everyone let me give AIDS? I just want to give children AIDS. And Garrison runs up with a car like there he is beating that dead horse. Yeah. <laughs> also, this episode had some truly gross moments but mm. I think one of the grosser moments was when they were force feeding Butters because that was the other plot line <laughs> is that they wanted Butters to be the spokesman for City Walk, City Walk yeah. or whatever um, and they like basically force feed him all of this food to try yeah. to get him to be fat so we could lose the weight yeah uh, it's, like it's a good way to introduce Butters yeah like, so when, when Butters <laughs> is like a main part of the group and he won't be the entire season but when he's the main part of the group he's the one that they're trying to just manipulate into doing all the shitty things that they don't want to do. And pretty much the... Yeah, he's like the sweet, simple boy. Yeah, the, and the way that they do it is just like, yeah, Kenny would have done it. Yeah. Right. Uh, unless you have anything more to say on episode two, which is Aspen. Not really. Um, I it's like, just kind of a funny send-up yeah. of, like, uh, an old John Cusack movie, Better Off Dead. Yeah, like the whole 80s uh, ski slope thing, as well as, like, the timeshare. Oh, yeah. Storyline. Oh, if, if you beat someone, you're supposed to hot dog, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he ends up helping him out. He does him a solid at the end. Yeah, that character actually ends up Nice. 
uh, Freak Strike, which is, uh, again, very, like, you know, like, low-hanging fruit, but they're taking a shot at the Maury Povich show and kind of how shitty and exploitative um, those kind of daytime talk shows can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, that's the one where it actually became, became kind of a meme for this series, the whole whatever I do what I want thing, where Carpenter's dressed up as, like, a skank. Yep. Um, and is, like, really mean to his mom. Oh, and they take another shot at uh, Gary Condon. The, the yeah. congressman that we talked about in the they do. show. You know, and he probably did not murder that woman. <laughs> but they are convinced. And he's like, he is from Colorado, right? So this is like all Colorado humor. Maybe. So I'm pretty sure he's from the state of Colorado. That's where he served. All right, at any rate, um, unless you have anything more. No. Uh, Fun with Veal, another kind of throwaway episode where the boys sort of take a stand. Oh, yeah. They're killing a baby cow. They, they find out that Veal is a baby cow. Like, the lesson is like, yeah, let's just eat animals when they grow up. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's let them live at least somewhat of a life before we murder them. Yeah. Uh, my favorite part of that episode is um, they're, they're trying to figure out, like, okay, how do we get the veal... Oh, okay. Two favorite parts of that episode. Uh, they have the breaking and entering kit. Uh, like Butters is reading it. Not for actual break and entering. Break and entering as a crime. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they, they broke it into trying to get the, the baby cows out of their holding cells. Uh, Carver's like, well, we could murder Butters and float the cows down on a river of blood. Butters doesn't have that much blood. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe my favorite episode of the oh, season. Yeah. Uh, the new Terrors of Philip movie trailer. <laughs> this should be a bad episode, but it, it lands. No, it's, it's so, so, good. so funny. Good. And yeah, anytime you see Terrors of Philip, like, okay, they, they need a filler here, so they're just going to, like, yeah. uh, do an episode about how, how much everyone hates them. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Russell Crowe stuff is just so fucking good oh, it in is, the trailer. Because yeah. mm-hmm. they, they, they want to watch the new Terrence and Philip movie trailer, but it's coming on during the, the Russell Crowe oh, fight. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, with the boat. And this it, is like a tiger. tiger. <laughs> I'm going to play in my song. Ah, Tucker shot himself. <laughs> yeah, he's just basically using it as an excuse to get into fight with all the bears. I think it's supposed to also be like a parody of the Crocodile Hunter mm. shtick. Because um, like that's what he's doing. He's, he even has that same kind of like Australian, yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. hammy accent. <laughs> uh, there's a, um, uh, but there's a point in the, the early two thousands where Russell Crowe was just getting into fights with people, just like <laughs> reporters and stuff. Like he'd like smash somebody's phone or some shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was happening like once a month. So. Yeah. He's got a show now. He just fights people. It's like the one where he calls the guys like yeah testicle. <laughs> 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 Um, okay, then you have, I guess that's sort of a two-parter, right? You have Professor Chaos, mm-hmm. which leads into The Simpsons Already Did It. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing is that it's basically slamming together five or six known premises from different Simpsons episodes um, with the idea that, you know, and they pointed out at the very end of their little soliloquy where they're just sort of like, yeah, sure, we're inspired by stuff from The Simpsons, but hey, The Simpsons are inspired by stuff from other things. Like, The Simpsons didn't invent everything, it's just they made so many fucking episodes over the years that it's hard to have an original idea anymore when we're making an animated series like they do. But also it's the creation of Professor Chaos, the character from Butters. Again, this, his evil, maniacal character is, again, so just delightfully sweet. Yeah. Like, again, just, just so naive, and it's not really that bad. And yeah, like, his, his idea of, like, chaos and evil is like switching people's orders at a restaurant so they get the wrong food. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, but this is also this is also when he, he he becomes Professor Chaos because they kick him out of the group and they're yeah. gonna add someone different into the group. And this is like like 
Butters is such a great character, but I think he is such a great character because he's like ostracized yeah. from the rest of the group. Like when he's part of the group, he's funny, but they have to find ways to include him. Whereas where he's just doing his own thing, I, I think he's just a much more endearing character because everyone's like, no, we, we, we don't like you. Go away. And they also, I guess, replace him with Tweak. Yeah. Oh, right. Tweak, Tweak ends up stepping up, and you have to deal with his neuroses the whole time whenever anything comes up. And they don't stick with him too long, but he'll be there for a bit. Yeah, they kind of they, they stick with him like, until you get to like the end of the season, uh, and he just kind of like disappears. There's no like, like ceremony or whatever to get him out of the group. He just kind of goes away. Yeah. Um, and... No, that's it. End of thought. And then I think they have a, like a run of three of the best episodes of the season, back to back to back. Um, Red Hot Catholic Love, which is about Father Maxi, the the town priest, sort of like trying to alert the Catholic Church that there is abuse of children going on in the church. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they already know. So uncomfortable. Uh, and what is it? The aliens from Gygax, whatever. The, the Gilgamesh. Yep. <laughs> Forget about the Gilgamesh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he goes to the Vatican, and like every priest just has a naked child on a oh, leash yeah. next to like, him. Oh, so my God. Bad. It's so bad. It's the kind of shit that like that you're really not going to get away with anywhere else. Yeah, it's it's one of the times where they're like punching up. Yeah, they're like yeah, let's let's just fucking show these guys as dirtbags. Yeah. Um. So then you've got free hat. Mm-hmm. Um, which is great because this is uh, another just really dumb misassociation of words. Yeah, but it's also gross <laughs> that they basically reenact three different famous rape scenes in films, but instead it's Indiana Jones being raped by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> it's kind of gross. Oh, God, they're raping him. Uh, but yeah, and that the fact that the town... Folk want to free Hat McCullough, who apparently like murdered a bunch of children and claimed that it was self-defense. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just—it's—it's it's so great. Um, yeah, um, and then babies, boobs destroy society. Again, gross moment where they show her getting breast implants done. Wendy, and, 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 yeah, and the just the nastiest, most unrealistic way possible. She's she, like no longer the object of the boys' affection, so. Yeah. She feels the need to become that again. Oh, yeah, because Baby, uh, the character Baby in the series has like started to hit puberty or whatever, and she's mm-hmm. growing boobs, and it's all the boys care about. Or... And they hit puberty, too, so they notice. Yeah. And I forget when the exchange she has with her mom's, with her mom, where she's like, she's like, no, I just hit a certain point where all the boys started liking me. And she's like, she, they mom, thought I was really smart, too. Yeah, it's like, well, let's take those two. And she's like, honey, those are or two plus five. I'm like, those are completely different numbers. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I really like that episode a lot. Um, they, they actually will, much later on in different episodes, handle Wendy as sort of a modern feminist and kind of go through body image stuff and they'll do it in very real ways that I think kind of hit home. Like those moments in South Park where, where there is like some realness to it and it's like, that's, that's tough. Again, not like you're watching a cartoon character get like gory implants put in but just sort of like the psychological damage of the obsession with appearance that the double standard when they're healthy there's also this uh, a really fun moment in that episode where they're like they're, they have a, a meeting with the core three Stan Kyle Kenny or Stan Kyle Cartman uh, uh, have a meeting like hey you know it's, it's obvious we need to have Bebe in our group yeah um, so someone's gotta go 
And they're like, yeah, I, I guess this has to happen. And they kick out Cartman. <laughs> they're like, you're kicking me out? Yeah, we like Tweak. Tweak is cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, what else do we got? Um, child abduction is not funny. Uh, that was so good. That's the one where so they're building the wall, or the shit, shitty walk guy is supposed to build the wall. Is that right? No, I think that's in, in season five, where he's building the wall. Actually, against those Mongolians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they hire Tuong Lu Kim to build a wall yes. around the city to protect the children from kidnappers, and the yes, Mongolians keep destroying it. Some casual racism going on there. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, it's just, again, it's such a, it's a silly, pointless. I don't think, I really think there's much of a, like a message in this one. Oh, no, it's, it's just, just silly. Funny. Yeah, that's it's just, just really, really funny. Well, it was one of those things where, like, uh, again, there was a growing obsession in America about child abduction. And the, the townspeople of Southwark, being the morons that they are, like, instantly react to what they see on the news. And, like, oh, we have to put trackers on our children. Oh, shit, it's most likely someone that they know. So they isolate themselves. Like, no, the parents are the most likely person to kidnap a child. It's like, now you all have to leave. We don't want to kidnap you. <laughs> uh, a ladder to heaven. I don't think this was necessarily that great of an episode. This is the no, this, this is them trying to like bring it all back. Yeah. And okay, we, we need to find a way to get Kenny back into the mix mm-hmm. somehow. But he's dead, so let's let's get his soul back, and then we'll find a way to reincarnate him. And this is also like I, probably the September episode because uh, it was it was very much um, there. There's that the country singer in here who was cashing in on. September 11th uh, uh, trauma and sang a song about it. Oh, Alan, Alan Jackson had a had a very like schmaltzy like kind of song. That's yeah. probably him. But yeah, keep going. Yeah, um, nothing remarkable with that one. Yeah, Return of the Fellowship of the Ring of the Two Towers. Mm-hmm. That's the one where they basically have some like really graphic hardcore porno um, that they're not supposed yeah. to have. Um, yeah, they, yeah, they're not aware that they have it. Only Butters knows what it actually is. Yeah, so then like. The whole thing is like the older kids are trying to steal it from them, but not the parents also want to prevent them from seeing it. But then they think they have seen it, so at the end, they basically are just like, "We need to explain what you just watched." So yeah, they describe everything that happened. Of course, they have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, as they're trying to return a the the VHS cassette or whatever to a blockbuster. <laughs> um, okay, moving on. Uh, Death Camp of Tolerance. This is another gross episode. The Lenny Winks episode? Right? Yeah. Oh, God. Where uh, Mr. Garrison is trying to get fired, actively trying to get fired, um, but then, like, the so town... He can, so he can sue. Yeah. So, but then the town has basically been, like, become so PC. This, is, like, this predates the pre-C, PC principalship by, like, 15 years, but, um, like, yeah, the town just, like, refuses to fire him, even though he's doing a ton of fireable stuff. Wildly inappropriate things. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so then you have the biggest douche in the universe, uh, where they go after a medium, a psychic medium. A uh, John Edward. John Edward, who is like basically doing cold reading. Of yeah, he's a, a huckster. Yeah, he's, he's a phony. And then like, but basically Stan does the same thing. Stan finds the book on his shelf and like literally learns the tricks of the book and just yeah, he just to prove it's wrong. Yeah, he, he, like, he'll do, like, demonstration and ends up with his own show. Like, I am faking everything that I'm doing. I was like, wow, he's really a psychic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think um, the, the, the funniest thing for me in, in that episode was uh, uh, the, the whole episode, they're like, okay, well, this, this guy is uh, an asshole. They keep on calling him a douche over and over again. And in the, the writer's room, there's a little commentary about this episode where I remember talking about, yeah, I think this guy really is the world's biggest douche. And 
then like at some point someone in the writers would go what about Rob Schneider? So you have all those intercut trailers of Rob Schneider movies yeah. where like Rob Schneider is the carrot. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, two more episodes to go. One I think is kind of underrated. I love this episode on rewatching it was My Future Self and Me mm-hmm. where it's this whole scheme orchestrated by the parents where they're hiring adult actors to get their kids to not do drugs by basically saying they're from the future being drug addicts. Yeah, and there's a really weird torture premise. Right. <laughs> and then there's that scene where, like, like Stan threatens to cut off his arm <laughs> to prove that the future self who loses his arm and his dad cuts the guy's hand off. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we don't have, like, the full emergence of Randy Marsh as a character quite yet, but we're starting to get little hints of, like, he's a guy that just takes things way too far. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I really enjoyed this episode. It was kind yeah. of funny. And, like, and it was just very much like, they knew what was going on but the parents just wouldn't fess up to it right they had been outsmarted by their own kids and there's this funny punchline at the end where like the one that approaches carbon really is carbon from the past or whatever <laughs> carbon from the future or whatever mm-hmm. oh, okay. i'll be from the future i admitted time travel <laughs> whatever i'll do what i want and then yeah and then the last episode is red slay down a parody of black hawk down um which is like Santa has been kidnapped by terrorists by Al Qaeda. Yeah, they, and they gotta have like they gotta get Jesus to save him. Yeah, and Jesus gotta go in and save the day. And it's basically a bunch of like brutal killings of terrorists and stuff. And I don't really remember it being no, not, not good an episode. I mean, it doesn't really land in yeah, terms of its message. Yeah, it's, it's fine. I yeah. And Carmen does like this whole like thing where he needs to do all these really good. He needs to be like this pristine. Yeah. good kid in order to get any presents that year from Santa who mm-hmm. was a real person in the South Park world um, so like, he, he's they're, they're flying in Santa's light he's singing a song and Kyle's like you really think singing a song is going to get you any credit you just start singing faster <laughs> <laughs> and so ends the season like oh and, and, the, and, they, oh. and they bring Kenny back uh, Kenny yeah. shows up at the end like at the end of the episode like hey, Kenny where you've been I'm just right over there <laughs> and that's how they bring back Kenny yeah. Oh, and um, I wish worth mentioning Isaac Hayes uh, still a part of the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has, has not really like formally left the show, or much later after leaving the show, passed away. Yeah, he'll. Um, and we don't have to get into it. But he'll, oh, he'll and the show. part with his mom. The mom is like doing the exorcism. Yeah, that well, was the season. That was adorable when she comes out in her big outfit, ready to like exercise. And we didn't have a, like we didn't have another child to put the soul into. I think that was the I think that was the John Edwards episode, biggest douche in the universe, because okay. uh, Carmen ends up in Scotland, where Chef's parents are from, obviously. Um, and, uh, she exercises uh, Kenny's soul from Carmen's body, and he ends up in a pot roast. But then that's where the story like kind of dies off. Like, never mind. Fuck it. Just bring him back. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the season. I think it's a really good one. Yeah, there's a ton of great episodes in here. Yeah, I think like uh, seasons five through nine are my personal favorites of their their run. Yeah, yeah. In lieu of watching a film, I'm glad we did this. Yep, because yeah, none of those films were uh, particularly interesting to me. Yeah. So uh, next up, we'll do sort of a hybrid. We do gotta talk about Pokemon. Then we'll also talk about that Nintendo Direct they just did. Sure. Because um, I've been playing the uh, the DLC, and I was actually not, not to get too deep into it right now. But I was reading a little bit about the DLC. Like, oh yeah, it'll take like 
about three hours to work through. Like, yeah, I suppose if you're just doing the critical things, but I'd probably put like six or seven hours into this point and I haven't done the main objectives yet. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I don't know how long the story goes, but I've explored like a third of the map from the story's perspective. So there's a lot of content there, and I know I've played for many, many hours already. Yeah, and it just uh, is really nice to be back into a, a new zone in Pokemon, have new stuff to catch. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Wes, any closing thoughts? No, I got nothing. Perfect. End of podcast. So long. Way to get it.